When planning for potential disasters, we often focus on hurricanes that might ravage coastal areas or droughts and fires that might strike rural places. But researchers are also working to uncover the vulnerabilities faced by urban areas. That's a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Walter P. Gorsh. P. Gorsh is the Director of Statistical Research and Education at the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. He's also a professor of mathematics, a professor of public health, and a member and former chair of the university's graduate interdisciplinary program in statistics. P. Gorsh's research focuses on data science and informatics for environmental hazards and risk assessment. He recently co-authored a significance article about the threats facing cities today. Walter, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Rosemary. I'm looking forward to this. For those who haven't read your article yet, could you describe one of the big takeaways as far as sort of city vulnerabilities goes? Sure. I think the biggest takeaway that we had, our message, maybe our narrative, was that place matters. These are large urban areas that we use the term city very loosely here. If a city's vulnerability to any kind of hazard, artificial, natural, really changes depending upon a number of, of important factors that, uh, that each city has, and each city's factors are almost always very, very different. So, so Walt, I, you know, I want to take you back in time a little bit uh, to, to when you started on this project. What, what was it that, that inspired you to start working on this? Uh, so my collaborator on this is uh, Professor Susan Cutter at the University of South Carolina. She's an expert in geographic uh, risk analysis. And honestly, uh, we were sitting at a committee that we got told to go to. And I just sat down and said, turned to her and I said, hi, I'm Walt. And she said, hi, I'm Susan. Uh, what do you do, Susan? Oh, I do geographic risk assessment. And I said, oh, I do statistical risk assessment. And it, I'll stop here. The rest is history. So one day we were sitting in a conference room of sorts, and we were working on the data that underlie this, these 132 cities that are part of our data set. And it just kind of dawned on me that the kind of risk assessment that I do could be applied to those data and that would be pretty novel. And it's, it's called a benchmark risk assessment. John, in fact, uh, you and I published on that recently. So it's something that uh, I just looked at it and went, holy cow, you could take this. And it's completely different than what the people do in, in benchmark risk assessment. They're over in toxicology, cancer risk assessment. But pick it up, drop it back down, and all of a sudden you're looking at terrorism vulnerability in cities. So to go back to the uh, the significance article that Rosemary mentioned, so say I'm a journalist, which I used to be a long, long time ago. You're a journalist. <laughs> thank, thank Is that a trick question, Richard? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at your significance article, and I'm going to write a newspaper story about it, and my lead would be something like data scientists and mathematicians predicted the January 6th terrorist attack. That would be, that would be the lead. What would be wrong with that, or is that does that get it? Uh, so you're talking about the the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th this year. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's you know I never thought of it quite that way. Uh, honestly, maybe we did because isn't Washington D.C. listed number as a, one? A, a, number one on our list, yes. right? 
Seventy-seven percent uh, probability. Is that right? Am I? Re- yeah, is, is, am that's I getting about that right. I'd have to look the number up myself, to be honest. But uh, Washington came in pretty high, and it came in pretty high for a number of reasons. Uh, I, I would not have said that if someone asked me that on January fifth. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> but at the same time, come to think of it, boy, we did, didn't we? Yes. <laughs> Pat on yeah. our backs. Uh, yes. Uh, that was the first thing I thought of when I when I saw that list, and I said, "Oh my gosh, talk about risk and uh, and vulnerability." They got and vulnerability. Yeah. They got this right. So, so how are you defining vulnerability, and how is that different from risk? Oh, that's a it's a great question. It's also very technical. Uh, there's multiple definitions of what uh, scientists will call risk. There's multiple definitions of what scientists will call vulnerability. Uh, risk for us boiled down is essentially a probability of some adverse event. Vulnerability is a little more complicated and, and much more multidimensional. Uh, it's, 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 the, it's, it's a city or it's a location's uh, features that make it vulnerable to some sort of adverse event. And what we did in, in this is the fifth of six papers that we've written on this over over 14 years, what we've done is evolved the, the machinations and the technology uh, to really kind of give us a better understanding of what vulnerability is and then how it relates to things like risk. I, I thought it was really, really cool that you're, you're taking these ideas of, you know, this physical hazard vulnerability, built environment vulnerability, and social vulnerability, and that you're, you're integrating these into a, into a measure that ultimately is, is kind of your, uh, your, your signpost for whether you worry or not in a community. You know, that's going to be driving your, your kind of prediction of what you think is going to happen. Could you, could you talk about each of those in turn and give an example of, of social vulnerability or build environment vulnerability and physical hazard vulnerability for us? Sure. Let me start with uh, social, which is we call it SOVI. Uh, that was the earliest metric that was developed uh, by my colleague, Susan Cutter. And it summarizes socioeconomic and demographic characteristics that influence a community's vulnerability to, well, anything, but we were focusing on natural or artificial hazards. What's a good example? You know, my favorite example of the SOVI metric is percentage of single parent households. And, and it's, not, it's not a favorite because it's, it's fun. It's actually an unfortunate statistic. But think about it. If you have a large number of single parent households, if you've got a major uh, event that occurs, terrorist attack, hurricane, flood, and you have a single parent, that single parent is almost certainly out working. And the kids are at home somehow, and maybe you're lucky enough to have some sort of supervisor, but oftentimes you don't. Uh, and if that parent gets taken out in some unfortunate fashion by that hazard, uh, it's typically a woman, so she's going to be in the hospital in a, in a coma. Who's taking care of the kids? Who's mm-hmm. getting them out of there if this flood is going to wipe out uh, that street, that city block? So that's the kind of there's many factors of social vulnerability, but as I say, that's one of my favorites, not because it's, it's pleasant, but because it's a really good marker. It gets all of us thinking about what the story is behind these kind of numbers. So can you follow up with like some of the you know, ones that sort of jump out for you for the built environment or for physical hazard? Sure. So for built environment, oh, here's one I like a lot. It's, this is kind of subtle, actually. The easy things to say are bridges and tunnels, how, how fast can you get people out 
of a, uh, a uh, hazard okay. in, uh, event, a hazardous event in your city. But one of my favorites on this one as well is uh, what if, are you doing the right things with your first responders? Do they have the same uh, electronics? Do they have the same communications? Do they know what dial to turn on the radio or, or transmission device uh, okay. so that, uh, that the ambulance driver can tell the hospital okay. who's coming and where? And the fire department can tell the sheriff, oh, wait, we need this road open. And some cities actually have these th kind of things integrated. Others don't, and they're a little behind the, the curve on it a bit. But there again, if you have this integration, if you've got some sort of important hazardous event that's occurred in your location, if, if you've got that integration in that system, a lot of things go a lot faster. A lot of people don't lose their lives or don't get hurt badly. And so that's an important, that's one of, again, one of my favorites of, uh, of built environment. So I'm thinking of uh, the infrastructure bills that politicians are considering. They've been considering this for 10 years and we haven't seen much. Do you do you have some frustration about your work getting transmitted to guys that actually make the decisions about whether to improve the built environment? Yeah, and so my frustrated. Well, personally, kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been around long enough to know that that translating even any kind of good science into a uh, uh, I'll call it a political or or decision making process uh, uh, is it takes time. Yes. Uh, so I, I like to think that uh, there's things that we do that impact, move forward. My mm -hmm. favorite example on this is uh, one of the early works had Boise, Idaho identified uh, as, a, as a high vulnerability city uh, for various reasons I could go into if you like. Uh, but it was also kind of sticking out there. One, because there's not a whole lot of big cities right. around Boise. And two, it just turned out there weren't a whole lot of high vulnerability locations west of the Mississippi. Oh. Uh, so that got picked up by news media, and they got moving on it, and they got I got calls from newspapers and radios and you know local TV and everything. But then one day I got a call from the Boise office of the FBI. <laughs> oh, my. And, and I have to tell you, it changes the entire tenor of your day. <laughs> when you pick up the phone and go, hello, and they say, hi, this is the FBI. <laughs> and you go, who? <laughs> Where? And they were doing their job, and they did it very, very well, I must say. They wanted to know, oh, what's this new thing we're hearing about Boise? What's going on here? Uh, well, you got to tell us about Boise now, Walt. You can't, yeah, just leave, yeah, yeah. can't leave us hanging here, pal. So... Boise, why, why, Boise, is, why is Boise higher up on the vulnerability Yeah, list? well, I actually have the, the – I pulled out the numbers in anticipating your question. So, uh, oh, you asked about the three components. We have the social component. We call it SOVI. We have the built environment component. We call it BEVI. And we have this physical hazard component, uh, 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 HASVI. To answer your last question, John, quick example of the physical environment uh, is, is how often do you see hurricanes come through? Mm. How often do you have to deal with, with floods, even if you're not a, a hurricane-prone city? Tornadoes in, the, in, the, in Tornado Alley. Those factors will drive up a city's uh, hazard vulnerability. And in particular for Boise, they experienced two very significant events in the span of our study. A major flood, which really hammered them pretty good, and a wildfire, which really cut them up pretty good mm. and created large losses. Mm -hmm. of, of property and, 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 uh, and, and some, even some casualties. And that's the kind of thing that drove up, that drives up our hazard vulnerability index. Uh, so they're just way high up there on, on just basically 
two very subtle kinds of vulnerabilities. Uh, but Boise is about, I, I should look this up, I forgot to do that, 15 miles, I think, away from a very large dam. Mm. And if you wanted to take out, this is the terrorism analysis we did, if you wanted to basically level Boise, take out that dam. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, the Boise FBI kind of knew that. <laughs> so they were kind of like, oh, yeah, sure, we understand. And good for them. <laughs> and I'm sure they're doing a great job on the security at that dam. Also, it's a big earthen dam. I don't, taking it out is going to be, this ain't no firecracker you're going to use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and then the wildfires as well they had. All you need is one crazy little uh, thunderstorm in the middle of summer hits with one lightning bolt. And that can take out a big chunk of town. If you, if, if you have that high vulnerability to wildfires, mm. that's going to be a major factor. And we're seeing more and more of that with more of our cities as, as climate change is affecting them. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Walter P. Gorsh about urban vulnerability. Well, I wonder if there are findings from this work that you've been doing that really did sort of catch you, you know, off your guard or that you found com- particularly compelling or surprising. All of it. Uh, we, mm-hmm. we, to be honest, uh, we had no preconceptions when we were doing this. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, it was a light bulb event that said, hey, you know, we can take this statistical method over from, from this cancer biology method uh, and translate it very efficient, effective, mm-hmm. effectively to this terrorism issue. And then, and then we've since then done flood analysis and we've, we've got further work we're doing on other kinds of uh, hazards as well. It, it, it really does plug and play very, very quickly once you get, once you fine tune it to be uh, appropriate. So no preconceived notions. We just, uh, I think the big step was the maps that we produced. And you, if you've seen the article, you've seen these maps because they really do visualize mm. uh, far more than I expected, but not in the sense that I'm in any sense uh, upset about or, or disappointed about. Uh, they really do visualize the kind of hazardscape that we're seeing. On so, a very, on a very. Practical I, I, by the way, I got to say, I, I realize how uh, uh, painfully ironic it is for us to be talking about color-coded uh, uh, cartographic maps on an audio podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> well, we use colorful you, language sometimes. Yeah, for, yeah. Helps. For you listeners out there, you got to go get the get your recent copy of Significance. <laughs> get magazine. two, buy one for your family, share. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So on a, on a really practical level, if I'm advising my, my son or daughter and they, they tell me they want to move to New Orleans, should I, should I tell them? What, what, would, you, what would you advise your, your children if, if you have children? Because New Orleans is like number two on the terrorism list and I think number one oh, on the— Oh, it's number uh, one on the flooding. Flood, uh, flood list. Point nine nine eight, I think, or 988 yes. probability of flood damage. Uh, I've been to New Orleans, and it's a, at least this is before Katrina, and it's a beautiful, it's a lovely yes. city. I want to say positive things about it first. Yeah. <laughs> but its hazardscape is just wow. And uh, that's, it's, it's got social vulnerabilities uh, that actually were uh, exposed during Katrina. It's got built environment vulnerabilities because it's sitting on a, a river and, and a big river. And and it's a forever that floods and it gets hit by hurricanes, so it's got physical hazard vulnerability. It's just it's just it, it's hitting on all cylinders, but <laughs> these are the wrong cylinders, right? right. You don't want to do that. Uh, so I don't want to be flippant and say don't move to New Orleans because uh, <laughs> it's a beautiful city, uh, but there's a lot of vulnerability in that town. Uh, it's among other things. It's uh, when we did our flood analysis, it, it's 
keep in mind, New Orleans is below sea level. Yeah, yeah that's right. And sea levels are only going up these yeah. days. So uh, I, I don't see our vulnerability analysis helping them out any in the, in the immediate future. Well, let's hope if we get that big infrastructure yeah. bill done this this year, they'll put a lot of money into New Orleans because it is a beautiful could. city. In fact, that was one of our message has been one of our messages all along. Place mm. matters. Yes. And there are places where you know you don't got to pump that much into uh, the uh, the uh, economy. I'll say the the let's take the built environment as a good example. You don't got to do too much. They've got it all figured out. They're doing a great job. There's other places that are, well, sitting below sea level, and maybe we've got to really understand flooding in that area far better than we do right now. Uh, so, the, yes, I, I, I would really want, uh, what's another good example? I would want someone, say, uh, in Norfolk, mm-hmm. which was pretty high on our list as well for multiple reasons and multiple a- a- outputs, inputs, uh, to also be beefing up things like its anti-terrorism, its, its, its built environment. How do you get out of that Norfolk? It's actually Norfolk and a couple of uh, uh, right. associated cities located right nearby. How do you get out of there? Because they're sitting on, a, 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 I guess, a river, and it's a naval base, so of course there's a lot of traffic going mm-hmm. in and out. Can you build that? Can you create that built environment that really is much more uh, protective of the location? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they may be doing that. I haven't followed up with what's going on in Norfolk, to be honest. But these are the kinds of things we feel are our one of our biggest messages. So you know, as you've you had a really a lot of work invested in terms of defining these vulnerabilities, which is a key part of the story. But there's also some interesting questions about trying to define kind of what is a terrorist event, you know. And, and then all of a sudden, I thought, well, okay, you you've got some quantification here. And it also makes me think that you don't know about the censored observations here, <laughs> you know, the ones mm-hmm. that are the, the kind of the near misses that might have been in place that it, maybe if there was if you had had some access to some other information, if that would have if that would have told you more. But but that's you have to deal with the observed the, the data that you have. So how did you operationally define um, this kind of terrorist event for the models that you you inve- you developed? Yeah, we actually uh, seeded that to a, an existing database called the GTD, Global, I think it's Global Terrorism Database, and then connected that up with other databases that just identified uh, numbers of events in these 132 metropolitan areas. Uh, and, and in fact, this, is, this was my, uh, one of the geographers working on this that just basically did all that, that data compilation and curation. Uh, and then we, we kind of fine-tuned it a little bit and said, you know, terrorist event is just one thing. Uh, but casualties from a terrorist event, that's, that kind of raises the bar a bit. Let's use, let's uh, uh, identify that, let's target that as the important thing. So okay. did, uh, did, did a city that had a terrorist event uh, report casualties or deaths? Okay. And that's basically what we did based on these, uh, on these existing databases. I was a little surprised, just as a follow-up question. You know, I, I, I was, when I was looking at your list of the, these t- top 10 U.S. metropolitan areas, I was expecting to see New York City as showing up higher in the list, or possibly Atlanta, or possibly L.A. You know, so there were sort of, you know, these cities that I was, now I think that some of them may have shown up a little bit later than the top, you know, they didn't make the top 10, but I was just, I, I kind of, had, my, my, my bias, my a priori in, intuition had them higher on the scale. Yeah, and uh, like I said, we didn't have any preconceived notions ourselves, so a lot of this was kind of interesting and, and uh, surprising. We thought that the knowledge discovery here was just off the charts, 
for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, we, what wisdom we can derive from that knowledge discovery, of course, is the next step. Uh, but sure, New York is actually pretty high. It just didn't make the top 10 on, uh, on terrorism. It did make the top 10 on flooding, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, and it's New York, Newark, I should add. It, we, these, these, are, these are conglomerations of, of multiple locations in, in a given right. city or, or urban area in the United States. In fact, it, it sounds like 132 cities, but I think it's over 600 counties oh. are built into these, into these yeah. constructed areas. So my follow my follow up to that, John, would be: uh, Should we move uh, from <laughs> south south? We're in the red we're in the red zone for flooding and the orange zone for terrorism. So and, uh, and you know you didn't mention tornadoes either. Yeah. And, you know so, so you know Oxford. I think we're uh, I'm surprised. Where's Oxford, Ohio, on this list, Walter? You know certainly this is a. This has got well, to be it, a major concern. I would have bet a priori that when you folks saw the maps, your eyes immediately were oh, drawn yeah. to southwestern Ohio. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. In fact, when I give a talk on this, the, it's of the statistics, yeah, the, uh, the, the students or the, or the audiences, yeah, that's nice, that's nice. Then I'll pop one of these maps up and everybody's eyes open, even the ones that were sleeping in the back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you can see them all, and I've, I've learned to watch for this, you can see them all look somewhere, their heads tilt, their eyes are open, and they're not looking at the same spot because they're looking maybe where they are right now, maybe yeah. where their parents live, maybe where their yeah. grandmother's uh, retired to or whatever the place that's important right the yeah place the place matters important to them yeah and and so uh for the record uh let's see i can't tell you oxford exactly but isn't <laughs> hamilton yeah. well because you're kind of small yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. isn't hamilton your county seat yeah we're close to cincinnati and dayton so yeah, hamilton's the closest hamilton's yeah. the closest well, it is the county so seat. the county that hamilton is the seat of is included in our definition of the cincinnati okay. metropolitan area yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that probably doesn't surprise you folks because no. uh, there's pieces of Indiana that are included right. in the Cincinnati <laughs> right. metropolitan area. There's pieces in northern Kentucky yeah, that yeah, are included yeah. in the Cincinnati yeah. metropolitan area. So uh, it, it, you are in there, mm -hmm. but you're being, you're being kind of coalesced in with, with the rest of the, Cincy, the larger Cincinnati metropolitan area. Yeah. So. I do like that Richard's been trying to get you to turn into a lobbyist, <laughs> a life coach. <laughs> Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, I can only go so far. You here, already do uh, risk assessments. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's it. That's in <laughs> So, so you know, Walt, well, you've you've built these 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 really interesting predictive models. So the the natural question is, when 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 anytime we're doing modeling, how do you know the models work? You know what's what? What did you do? I, I know you did some other. You did some stuff with with kind of out of sample prediction. But can you talk a little bit about kind of checking and and investigating whether or not the models are 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 doing what you claim? Yes, and and that's a good thing. Any good statistician should be thinking about is just handing out a number is not enough. Uh, you got to look and see what that number means. In fact, I uh, <laughs> just take a little tangent here for you folks. It, in any statistics class I teach, I I, I try to always put this one line forward, this one thing that I hope the students will get, and that's that no user, no, no producer, no reader of any statistics should ever be satisfied with a point estimate. Never be satisfied with a point estimate. Always insist on either producing or discovering some quantification of the uncertainty. And, and it's kind of funny. I had a student. It wasn't my student, but it was, it was. He was doing his PhD defense, and he actually partly remembered what I was saying in, my, in the class he took with me. He said, "Yes, and I'm not satisfied with the point estimate." And I'm thinking, <laughs> "Pass that kid. He's good to go." Uh, but we did this. Yeah, it's it's, it's in the significance article, uh, John. We actually 
just ask, okay, what do we predict a city is going to be? And we had data from 1970 to 2004, and we, we looked at, okay, what did we predict and what happened in that, in that 35 year period? But then we were able to go back into that same database I mentioned earlier and see what's happened in, uh, since 2005. It, it ended in 2018 for the data we had. And then ask, okay, what would we have predicted for those same cities and what happened since then? And uh, we saw pretty good predictive uh, uh, responses, predictive analytics. Uh, you, this always kind of happens. Your test, your, your, your training data will kind of give you high numbers. You don't want to overtrain. Uh, but then go, go in against a test data set and see how it does. And it did pretty well. Uh, certainly above what we would call the coin flip hmm. uh, uh, metric, which is just if it's 50-50, you might as well flip a coin. You don't need statistics for this. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Walt, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, yeah. Walt. Thanks, Walt. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 